Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read verses uh, 26 through 40. I'll read it for us. And um, again, I'll say this is the word of the Lord at the end, and we'll give thanks to God together, corporately, right? So verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert place, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you just for prayer. Uh, even as a church, we pray as a church who is one, who is devoted to the same Lord, the same Master, having the same confession of faith, the same baptism, the same earnest desire to even hear from you now, Lord. So would you speak, God, through your text? Would your spirit move in our hearts to apply it and lead us out, uh, that we might leave, live lives that are, that are truly in submission to you in every way? We pray Jesus in your holy name. Amen. All right, y'all can take a seat real quick. Quick, uh, quick reminder of the context of the passage. So this story, it occurs in the, in the midst of a great uptick of persecution in Jerusalem, such that most of the church in Jerusalem, they are forced to seek refuge kind of all over the surrounding cities. They go in all these different directions. And one of the families that fled for refuge is Philip. And we're presuming his family. Now, we see later in the account of Acts that uh, Philip has a family. He's got four daughters. He's got a wife. He's got four daughters who are older. And we pick up his story in Acts chapter 21. So anyway, his family seeks refuge. They go to the city of Samaria. Again, they're living normal lives, seeking to settle in. But they're preaching the gospel. They're praying for people. And the Lord moves in great power. There's healing. There's miracles. And more than anything, the gospel penetrates this new, this new community. The gospel falls in Samaria. And uh, again, Samaritans are baptized. We've got the story of a magician who comes to faith. I mean, it's just a, a wonderful account before that. And then after a short season in Samaria, they return back to Jerusalem. Things maybe calm down a little bit. The persecution seems to have gone down a little bit. It says that in verse 25, they start going back to Jerusalem. And that's right where our passage picks up, all right? They're on the way back to. They're either on the way back or they're right back in Jerusalem, and then look what happens in uh, verse twenty-six. All right. Now an angel of the Lord 
said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Pretty abrupt, all right? The, remember the context that I just explained. They had just gotten back. They had just been on the run. They had just been seeking refuge. And then all of a sudden, boom, an angel of the Lord directly commands Philip a new assignment, his next assignment. Rise and go toward the south, towards Gaza. That's all, he to- that's all he's told. No instructions are given for exactly where he's going, how long he's going to go, simply rise and go. And Luke, he describes the place as a, as a desert place, right? So again, this is the Middle East. So most of the places are desert places. There are some places that have some, some green, some foliage, you know, every now and then. But this was a very desert, deserted place, okay? Um, so it's not a desirable place to just pick up and go somewhere, you know? Um, so again, just take it in. If you're in Philip's shoes, how would you feel? Maybe you just got home, you're about to get settled back into normal life and rhythms, you're about to start back up your business or your job, you're about to see people who had scattered, you're ready to kind of settle in, get to see everybody again, and then all of a sudden, angel of the Lord appears. It's time to go. It's time to get up. Go towards the, go towards the south, on the road towards Gaza. It's a, it's a desert place. I mean, that would have been hard to do, right? I mean, that would have been a really, really hard command to receive in a moment and then what does philip do what does it say four words he rose and went no questioning no need for further information from the angel of the lord certainly no complaining that we that we see recorded he simply got up from where he was i'm sure explained to his wife explained to his children hey i don't really understand this but an angel of the lord's come He's told me to go in this direction, so like you know and like we've done, I must obey. Gives him a kiss, maybe picks up a quick bag. Again, it's a desert place, and he gets up, and he goes. Again, I can't imagine, I mean, just if this is you, how would you respond? I'm assuming probably much like I would, you know. Wait a second. God, really? Are you really, like right now? You want me to go right now? Are you sure? And then, you know, you get those kind of commands from God, and then it's like, well, how, well, maybe, uh, let's just see how this matches up with the rest of Scripture. I'm supposed to take care of my home, right? I'm supposed to provide. I'm supposed to protect. How am I going to do that if I got, you know, we would start. That's where my mind would go. Immediately, I'm starting to, to question. But that's not what Philip does. He rose and went. Four words was all, all is described what he did. And again, I'm not saying that those type of questions are wrong to ask, you know, that we would naturally ask when the Lord tells us to do things. It's not, it's not necessarily wrong, but it's clear that Luke's putting Philip forward as an example for us to follow. He's a man who was described in Acts 6 as one who is full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. So how does one who's full of faith, how does one who's full of the Holy Spirit respond when the Lord tells them to do something? Regardless of how hard it is or how abstract or how seemingly strange it may be, immediate faith-filled obedience. So I was just reading this text, even just the first couple verses, like, man, Lord, this is not me. Would you make me a man who is like this, who responds to your commands in this manner? So even at the very start of the passage, there's a clear exhortation for us, brothers and sisters, that we must follow the example of Philip, that we would immediately and with full faith obey the commands of our Lord. He knows what's best for us. He knows what we need. And as we'll continue to see, 
He intends to work powerfully through our faith-filled obedience, as seemingly simple as it might be, rising up and walking on, right? So look at, look at 27, 28, what's written. So he's on the road. It says, now there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip's walking on the road. He sees, a, he sees a eunuch of high standing from the court of the queen of the Ethiopians. Again, I don't know exactly how he identified that. I'm presuming later when he's telling Luke the story, he gives all this information. But what would have been clear is there's a very important individual traveling by chariot on this exact same road that Philip was told to go on. This guy would have been decked out in all the nicest apparel. He would have had uh, you know, a unit of bodyguards or a security personnel around him. There would have been servants with him. He was also a eunuch, so that means that he was a castrated male. This, in that time, was a tremendously shameful thing that could be done to a male, as it would be now. Um, and it was done to these court officials in many pagan lands so that the, these officials wouldn't pursue a life of sexual promiscuity within their work. Again, very sick tradition, but that's what was done. And in another way, again, that would have been a shameful thing to experience. But then in another sick and twisted way, it would have also been a thing of, of, of privilege. You would be respected if you were this, this eunuch. You would have a place of honor. It's even much like our own modern day where shameful sexual perversions are championed and respected and we're told to honor them. It would have been much to that degree, right? So there would have been some shame there, but then there also would have been respect and honor. And Luke describes this man as a would-be proselyte. Okay, so he had made a considerable journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping, to worship the Lord in the temple. And now he's returning back home. It also says, as we learn in the rest of the story, that he had a copy of the scriptures. So that would have meant that he would have spent a lot of money to get that copy of the scriptures. He couldn't just go on Amazon and pick his favorite version and it's there the next couple of days for 20 bucks. This would have been a lot of money to pay for this scripture. So anyway, what we get, we get a description of a man on the road, this eunuch, who is genuine in his desire to know and worship the true and living God. He's fully, he's desiring that, right? He made this long trip. He's spending all this money. He's reading the scriptures. He desires to know God. And yet, because of his castration, because of his identity as a eunuch, he would have been excluded from becoming a full-fledged proselyte of Judaism. I'm not going to read the text out loud publicly, but you can look later. Deuteronomy 23.1 gives a very specific uh, exhortation. These type of people cannot be allowed into the temple courts. So he's hungry for truth. He was steeped in darkness. Surely there would have been this weird kind of identity thing going on in his mind and his heart. Who am I? What am I here for? He was certainly probably looking for purpose in life. And that's, this is the guy that Philip comes across on the road. And look at what happens next. Look at what's recorded next. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Did you catch the first, the first couple words there, the first three words? The Spirit said. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. I'm pointing this out because there are only three places in the New Testament where it is explicitly and intentionally written that the Spirit said. Now, we all know that the Scripture is breathed out by God and that the pens of the prophets and the authors of the text were surely moved by the Holy Spirit. So you could say all of the Scriptures could be, they could be said before the Spirit said. We could say that of all the Scriptures. But 
Here specifically, and in two other places, it's recorded very intentionally, very deliberately, the Spirit said. It's here in Acts uh, 8.29, it's in Acts 10.19, and it's in Acts 13.2. Something is being communicated at each one of those instances. And it's, it's important, and it's pretty astounding. So, so 8.29, what does the Spirit say? Acts 8.29, the Spirit says, go over and join this chariot. And again, we've just read the story, and we're going to get into this, but the result of Philip's obedience to this command is that an Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith, and then he takes the gospel back with him to Africa. And then in Acts 10.19, uh, the Spirit says to Peter, the Spirit said to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Those men were men from Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, and he had, they had been sent to Peter. They had been told to go get Peter and bring him back because you've received a vision, and Peter knows, knows the, the interpretation of this vision. He's going to be able to explain it to you. And again, the result of Peter's obedience is that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles. And then Acts 13.2, this is the third instance where it's written, the Spirit said... This is when the Holy Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas for their missionary work to the Gentiles. It's written, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the fruit of Saul, Barnabas, and the church, church's obedience in Antioch, the, the fruit of that is that a, a global gospel movement is sparked. And the gospel goes to the ends of the known world as a result of the obedience. So again, uh, Holy, the Holy Spirit said, every time that's written, what's happening after that is the gospel, what the Spirit is telling the people to do is to cross a major cultural and social barrier for the sake of the gospel. Y'all with me there? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty deliberate. Each time it's written, the Holy Spirit said, the same result occurs. The Holy Spirit crosses major cultural barriers, major social barriers. So what are we con to conclude about this? I want you to think about it, all right? Well, what, is, what does this mean? You tell me. Think about it. Process it. What does this mean? What does this communicate about God? What does this communicate about His mission? Y'all tracking with me? Okay. Just think about it. What, is it. what does it communicate? What are we to learn from that? What do you think? Be careful what the Spirit, what we portray the Spirit saying. Okay, yeah, yeah. Certainly. Yeah, there's, there ought to be... If we're, if we're going to say the Spirit said, yeah, we need to be careful, for sure. What else? Any other things we can glean from that? Yes. That's it, right? I think that's it. God's desire... God's sovereign plan is that His gospel would penetrate and reach every single crook and cranny of the world. This is His prerogative. This is what He's after. This is what He's been doing from the beginning of the world. And we naturally don't do that. We naturally stay with people that are like us. We naturally stay in places where we're comfortable. And it takes God. It takes the Holy Spirit moving us out. It takes the Holy Spirit directing us very intentionally to cross these barriers um, and, li and listen to what's written, just to make that point again clear. What's written in Isaiah 56? Again, this Ethiopian eunuch, he was not allowed to even enter into the temple courts. But what's written in Isaiah 56 is, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, 
Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And then in Isaiah 9, it's recorded that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When the Holy Spirit says to Philip, go over to this chariot, this is what he's doing. He's crossing that barrier. He's pushing Philip to cross that barrier. So again, another exhortation that's just clear from this text is that we must join the Lord in His mission and in His desire to seek and to save the lost. This is what He's doing. Again, we've got to remember that we receive the Holy Spirit, that we might be sanctified, that we might be led in truth, but also Acts 1.8, that we might, be, we might have power to be witnesses to His glory and to His gospel among all peoples. Y'all with me? So if we abide in Christ and obey Him in everyday stuff of life, the Lord, by His Spirit, will move us to share His good news. He will. He's going to lead us. He's going to provide those opportunities for us. And He's going to prepare the way for His gospel. So look at what happens next, verse 30. So again, Philip's told, go over to this chariot. So Philip ran to him. I love that. So Philip probably sees the, he probably sees the chariot go by, and he's like, man, that is strange. And then the Spirit says, hey, go over to that chariot. He's like, oh, shoot. So he takes off running. So he runs to the chariot, and as he gets up there, he's catching up, and he hears that he's reading the prophet Isaiah, and he asked him. I don't know if he's panting at this point. Obviously, he had been running. I'm, I'm not going to impersonate him. But he asked him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? So then he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Dude, if that's not an inroad for the gospel. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip again... He immediately, he obeys the Lord's command to go over to this chariot. That was obviously prestigious in its rank. And upon arriving, he hears the prophet of Isaiah being read. And then Philip asks just a very simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch unsurprisingly responds, well, how, how can I unless someone guides me? It's a very simple question asked by the evangelist, isn't it? It's one that we just skip over far too often. Do you understand what you're reading? You know, the scriptures are very easy to understand in some regards, but then at the other time when we really think about what this text is, we, we can see that it is hard to understand. 66 different books, 40 different authors, written over a thousand years. There's a lot of different stories, and yet there's one cohesive story. It's hard to understand. So, I mean, as we're talking with one another, as we're talking with friends and coworkers and family members, that ought to be a question we just ask all the time. Not arrogantly. But it's just a question. Do you understand that? Do you understand what you read? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, we, that ought to be a question that we just, we just ask. And then, I just love Philip's approach, too. Like, th this is the inroad. You see Jesus doing this a lot, too, in the Gospels. How do you get into Gospel conversations? Questions. Just ask questions. Do you understand? Hey, can I, can I pray for you? Have you ever read the Bible before? When you read it, did you understand what you... You have, Ellie Gray. <laughs> but then you ask the question, like, did you understand it when you read it? You understood, did you, yeah, there was probably some things you didn't understand, right? I mean, you just ask those questions and the Lord will open up all kind of doors for you. 
And the eunuch, I, I love his response too. That's also very instructive to us. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? He recognized the truth that so many of us and so many people fail to realize that we need to be taught. We need to be taught. God has sovereignly chosen for His truth to be delivered and illuminated to people through His scriptures being read or heard and then explained. That's what it takes. God communicates His truth and His will through His word, and we must have someone guide us, lead us, and teach us His truth as we receive it. There's no special revelations given apart from His Word. When those happen, or they claim to have happened, what starts is a new religion. That's where Mormonism comes from. That's where Islam comes from. That's where all these different sects come from. I've gotten this new special revelation. There is no new special revelation. It is not how God works. We must be taught. We must be instructed. We must be guided. Now, the Lord will give visions and dreams to His people, but they are always, when rightly received, they are measured against the Word, and they are done so in a community of faith. So again, there's just all kind of instruction and narratives like this, you know? Questions being asked, responses being given, all of it's just, it's, it's pretty awesome. And then, listen to what the eunuch's reading. There's so much more here. The eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. And again, the, the text, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? From his life, for his life is taken away from the earth. Who's that talking about? Mom. Not mom. <laughs> Who's that text talking about? Everybody's scared now because you, you got to be explained to what I just said before. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know. Who, Dan? Yeah, it's the Messiah. This is one of the paramount texts in all of the Old Testament that describes who the Messiah will be what he will be like, and what his work will entail. And again, you just take in the whole story. Take in this whole story, and you're like, he's running up to this chariot, and this is the text that the eunuchs read? Out of the whole Old Testament, this is the one? You, when you get some free time, read Isaiah 53. It, it's, it'll stick out. I mean, it is so clear that this is about the Christ, our Lord and Savior. So what did Philip do? He did the only thing that makes sense up to this point. It's written that he opened his mouth, <laughs> and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So there's a, there's two, there's a lot of things that you can glean from this piece of the narrative, this piece of the story. But there's two things that, as I was praying through it, just wanted to emphasize for us. One is just the glorious providence of God that we see in this text. And then two is the Christocentric nature of all the scriptures, that Christ is the center of all the scriptures. So one, the glorious providence of God is seen in this text. When's the last time you used the word providence in a normal conversation? Anybody? Talking about Rhode Island? Talking about Rhode Island? Yeah, okay, that's right. It took me a second to get this. Yeah. It's not, we don't use that word commonly, right? We don't just throw around the word providence. You know, it's not something that we're talking about, unless we live in Rhode Island. Um, so I want to give you a definition I'm going to give you a couple different ones in hopes that it will form maybe something cohesive in our minds. So God's providence is His gracious outworking of His divine purposes in Christ within the created order in human history. So in other words, the world and humanity are not ruled by chance and are not ruled by fate. But they are ruled by a God who's directing history and He's directing creation towards an ultimate goal. 
So God's providence, it refers to his superintending activity over human actions and over human history. Again, to bring creation to his divinely determined goal. There's a, uh, there's a confessional statement of faith called the Heidelberg Confession. O- old Reformed Confession of Faith. And there's actually a question written, question 27. And the question is, what is the providence of God? Wonderful. You don't have to make it up. You can just look back to guys that were much smarter than us and get their answer. So this is the answer to question 27 of the Heidelberg Confession. What is the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God. What is the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all its creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health, sickness, riches, poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I'm saying the same thing over and over again just because it's helpful. Again, what is, what is God's providence? What does it mean? It's the ordering of all things every day in the lives of every person on the planet at the same time for God's divinely intended purposes. That includes conversations we have in our day-to-day lives, just like this one that's recorded in Acts 8. This is God's providence at work. This is what's happening. It's the daily provision that he gives to people, to birds, to fish of the sea. It even includes the rate at which your grass and your weeds grow at your house. Okay? God's providentially at work. Even in that, in all things, this is what's happening. So, I'm going to zoom out. Wait, excuse me. That was out. We're going to zoom in. Okay? And we're going to think about God's providence at work both in Philip's life and in the Ethiopian's life. Okay? And when you do this, it's pretty astounding and there's so much that comes from it. So think about Philip's life. Okay? He was persecuted in Jerusalem, so he flees for safety. And God just so happens to lead him to the city of Samaria. He begins having conversations, praying for people, sharing the gospel. And then many people believe in Christ and the gospel first reaches the Samaritans. Then he follows the Lord's instruction to rise up and go to a desert road. While he's there, he sees an Ethiopian who happens to be reading from the most gospel-centered, Christ-exalting text in all of the Old Testament. Needless to say, God is providentially at work in his brother's life, leading him, providing for him all along the way. It's God's providence at play. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. And then think about the providence of God displayed in the Ethiopian's life. In the course of his life, this eunuch had learned of the God of Israel. Again, that wasn't by chance. He learns of the God of Israel because God superintended that to happen. right? And then because of his wealth and because of his prestige, which God had given him because of his position, he was allowed to possess a copy of the Scripture. Not only that, he was given some free time. He was given the money and the resources to make a trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. And now he's on his way back. Then you think about how the Lord worked out all the logistics to get the Ethiopian eunuch on the road at the same time that he called Philip to be on the road. There's all kind of logistics involved in that, right? Now, there would, there would have been traffic, not like Highway 17 traffic, but there would have been traffic nonetheless. You know, a cart turns over and the road becomes blocked or something happens. So there would have been traffic as a variable that, that was at play. This Ethiopian probably got hungry at times, you know, so he had to stop to get something to eat, would have gotten thirsty. There's all kind of things, variables, that the Lord worked out. He superintended so that this unit would be on the road at the same exact time that Philip would be on the road. And then, while he's on the road, 
The Lord providentially leads the Ethiopian to not only read the Scriptures, but to be reading the Scriptures at such a rate that he would find himself in Isaiah 53 at such a time that he would then meet Philip. I mean, it's just astounding. None of this is by chance. This is what God's providence looks like in real life, in real time. He's working all things for His predetermined purposes. It's pretty amazing. This is the same God that's at work in my life, and in your life every single day. Everything that's happening in our lives is a result of the providence of God, bringing about His specific purposes through His appointed means for His ultimate glory in our lives and in all creation. Again, the conversations we have, the things that we're reading in the Scriptures, the struggles that we're currently going through, the financial situation that we find ourselves in right now, all of it is a gracious outworking of God's providence in my life and in your life. It's just true. And then you, when you think the application of this doctrine of who God is, is abundant. I'm just going to give you four of them. I'm going to give you four applications to the providence of God in your life today. One, because of God's providence, be patient in adversity. Me and you were in adversity. Don't forget how this whole chapter came about. How did it start? Persecution. Immense adversity. All of God's people now are refugees. All of them. Far more adversity than me and you are meeting today. And yet, what is God doing in the midst of all of it? He's working all these things out so that His gospel would reach to all these people. He's teaching His people joy in the midst of this adversity that they wouldn't have had otherwise. He's teaching them who He is, that He provides. He's teaching them that He's sustaining. He's teaching them about His providence, all of these different things. So, what do we do with God's providence in the midst of our adversity? We be patient. That's probably not grammatically correct. But be patient. That's the exhortation. In the midst of your adversity, be patient. And it's because of God's providence that James can write in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why? Because God, is, His providence is working out in your life. Secondly, another application. Be thankful in prosperity. Be patient in adversity and then be thankful in prosperity. Know that all that you have, all that you've been given, every piece of your life has been providentially given to you. Everything. So be thankful. It's all a gracious gift from Him. And it's all for His purposes. So again, let's not be arrogant about our resources, our gifts, or our positions. We ought to be full of thankfulness. And then thirdly, in light of that, be patient in adversity, be thankful in prosperity. But then thirdly, get to work and get to work for God's glory in all of life. Get to work. At every moment, in every person's life on the planet, God is working out all things for His glory. That ought to infuse this sense of confidence that man is like, man, as I go outside, man, God's working. As I go to work today, man, God is at work. As I go to the grocery store today, man, God's doing something. So we ought to get to work in all of these different avenues that we've been given. Mamas, it's a call. Get to work, diligently training up those little ones. Give your life to it. For all of us, we ought to think about our neighborhood, our neighbors, the places where we work. Man, God is working in all these people's lives that are around us. So we ought to get to work. We can ask those questions with full faith. Men, for us, again, we ought to get to work in seeking to lead our families towards godliness. Leading our families on mission. Leading our families to steward our resources. The giftings that you've been entrusted with in your household. All those things ought to be put into play. Not because you're so wise or we have all this talent or something, but because our God... He has this providence that's working out in all things. It ought to push us to get to work. 
And then the last, there's a lot about more applications, but the last one is that we ought to be looking for God's providential working in our lives and in the lives of the lost around us. Man, it couldn't be more clear in this passage. God is always providentially at work to seek and to save the lost. He is always doing this. We never know what God's doing in the lives of the people who live beside us, who work with us, and who we see in the normal course of our lives. There could be questions about the Lord that they have. They could be searching for hope. Maybe like the eunuch, maybe they've been searching the scriptures. And maybe they just need someone to guide them. They need a question, somebody to ask them a question. Do you understand what you're reading? And for them to have the opportunity to say, no, I don't. We don't, we don't know how God's at work. But we do know that His will is to seek and to save the lost. And that because of His providence that we see all throughout the Scriptures, He's working out all these little things so that His will will be accomplished. So we ought to always, as Pastor Kim liked to say back in Clemson, had you, have your head on a swivel. Always looking around to see where God's at work. Where can I be engaged? What can I do? How can I, be, how can I join in God's work? Um, amen? I'm going to speed up. I'm sorry. I'm going to just mention this one, and then we're going to keep going. The other truth I just wanted to point out, it's instructive, though, is that Jesus Christ is the center of the Bible. Everybody in this room knows that. You know, we've been graced and blessed with a lot of Bible knowledge, so we know that Jesus Christ is the center of this story. We know that. But most people in the world do not know that. They think this book is just a book of laws, that it's a book of morals. That they, They have all kind of opinions about what this book is really about. The majority of people who are not born again, when you ask them about the Bible, they have no idea what it's really about. So we ought to not only ourselves, as we read the scriptures every single day, be asking, okay, how does this proverb point me to the gospel? Okay, I'm reading in, you, you, Trent, you did this earlier, which I love. Nate, you did this earlier too, both of you guys, just because God's graced you with some knowledge. You re, you're reading in Isaiah, and you're pointing to Christ. That's where you went. You went straight to the gospel. That's, that's good Bible reading. That's good hermeneutics. Trent, you're in Leviticus, bro. That's what you quoted earlier. Leviticus, laws about menstruation, right? And you went to the gospel. That's good Bible reading. That's, good, that's what you're supposed to do. But again, the majority of people, not just lost, but the majority of people who are in churches today have no idea what this book's about. So that ought to be something that we talk about a lot when we talk about this book. Get back to the center of it. Did you, know, did you know that that Bible is actually one story about Jesus? The majority of people will be like, uh, no. I'm telling you, they will. They haven't heard that before. All right, we've got to keep going. Last four verses, verse 36. I'm going to read it, give you a couple things, and then we're going to move to some application because I've been talking for a while. 36, as they're going along the road, they came to some water. Let me context again. Y'all know what's going on just to get back there. Philip's in the chariot. He's explaining Isaiah 53, which means that he's sharing about the good news of Jesus Christ. So they're going along the road. I don't know how long they had been at this point. But they're going along the road, and they come to some water. And here it is, 36. The eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So again, a couple, just two, two things I just want to kind of emphasize here in this last little portion of the story. One, there's just a genuine work of God to convert the Ethiopian eunuch, right? This is what it looks like, man. 
When the Lord's working in somebody's life, when the Lord's calling someone to Himself, when the Lord takes the, the Word of the Gospel and then truly implants it into somebody's heart and life, you can't stop them. You, know, you, you, don't, have, you don't have to beg somebody to read the Bible when they've been regenerated. Like you, you don't have to beg someone to take baptism when they've been truly born again. Will, I thought about you when we read this story. It's like when Sam led you to Christ, you were just in, dude. I remember that. You were just, like, nobody had to just beg you to do so. You were just like, all right, well, what do I do next? Okay, i got to be baptized. Why am I going to be baptized? You know, it's just natural. It's because the Spirit of God makes us alive, right? So, again, this, this calls for us even as a church. Like, we can be simple like this. We don't have to be slick with our evangelism. We don't have some slick marketing campaign or some you know, crazy discipleship strategy to win people to Jesus. No. We just have to listen to His Spirit, move with this confidence that He's providentially at work, and then, just like Philip, open our mouths to talk about the good news of Jesus. And as we do that, God will move. He'll, he'll move. He'll save people. He'll, he'll be working in the lives of people that are around us. We can have confidence in that. And then one other thing... Uh, Philip, he continues his ministry, right? Again, he'd just gotten home, and now he's told to go on the road towards Gaza. So he obeys. He's on this road. Now he's away from his family, and um, he, he, he continues his ministry. It says at the end, it says, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Not like, it's not carried in terms of like literally picked him up and like, that's not that. That's not what's going on here. He carried him away in the sense that he's leading him. He's directing him. He's showing him the direction to go. And then it says that Philip found himself at Azotus. Again, Luke, what he's doing, he's trying to, he's making this point that like, man, the Lord was just so leading this brother that he's just, I mean, he's just single focused. He's not even really thinking about where am I going? What am I going to be provided for? He finds himself at Azotus. This is where he finds himself. It says he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I don't have a map. I wish I did. This is kind of where the kind of nerdy side comes out. But if you were to look at a map, this distance that's covered Jerusalem to Gaza up, to, up through Azotus to Caesarea, that's 75 miles, a little over 75 miles that he's following the Lord and this command to go and pre- preach the gospel. There's no QTs. He ain't stopping in for a slushy, some, a good, nice bite to eat. There's no holiday in. There's no, there, there, there's no re- nice rest stops. Again, this is roughing it, man. And this is a dangerous journey. At this time and on those pathways, for a Jew to be traveling those routes was very dangerous. He could be mugged, he could be killed, and yet he continues on faithfully following his Lord. So just two application questions just to maybe hear, think about. We're not going to discuss these specifically, but just to kind of get, these are questions I've been wrestling with. As we abide in Christ and as we walk with the Lord, are we doing so in such a way that we would hear the voice of God commanding us to rise and go. You know? It's like, am I, am I walking with God? Am I abiding in such a way that when He tells me to do something strange and abstract even, outside of the norm, that I would not only hear Him, but then have a willingness to obey? You know? Like, I think Luke wants you to wrestle with that. I think that's what he wants us to do. That's why he spends some, a whole chapter on Philip. It's like, look at this guy. Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. It's a mirror for us. Is that you? Is that me? I pray that it would be, that we would diligently seek to be like Him. Men and women, full of the Spirit, full of faith, that we would live this way. And then the second thing to think about, 
It's just the question of this. Do we really believe? Like we can confess the providence of God, but do you really believe it? You know, like in the midst of your work, the adversity, the prosperity you have, do we really believe that all of this is, is God's sovereign hand at work in our everyday lives? Are we, expe- are we expecting for God to providentially work? We look at our heads on a swivel, you know. Are we looking for the ways in which he's working? So, again, I pray that we would be a people that not only believe and confess in the providence of God, but that it would be something that comes out through our fingertips, how we live our lives, how we, how we ask questions of people, how we shop at Aldi, <laughs> that the providence of God would be coming out in our fingertips as we interact with people. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll do a little question. We'll have just a segment for questions, and if anybody wants to add anything, and then we'll pair up, and we'll dig in and try to apply the passage together. So, Father, we thank you that you are a God of providence, that you have a sovereign will for all of creation. You have a sovereign will for each one of our lives. You have a sovereign will for our household, for our church. You have a sovereign will for this day. And you, Lord, are working in every single one of our lives at the same time, directing us, leading us, guiding us towards those ends. Praise be to your name, Lord, for who you are, for your glory, for the power that you possess to, to, to work in such a way. God, would you give us a confidence and a peace, Lord, a patience as we live our lives, confessing your providence. And then, Father, I pray that you would make us a people who are full of faith and full of your Holy Spirit, that we, like Philip, would walk with you, that we would expect you to move. We would expect you to give us conversations. We would expect great things of you, Lord. Would you help us to be those type of people for your glory? We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.